This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We are starting now some discussions. Well, I guess this has been going on for a few weeks uh, at City Hall about uh, looking at some of the budget numbers for 2018. And and they're not going to vote on anything as of yet, but it's uh, a good time to uh, get some of that stuff out there. And one of the most important and sometimes one of the most contentious issues is the budget for Hamilton Police Services. And that was presented to the Police Services Board yesterday uh, by uh, Chief of Police Eric Gert. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson is the uh, City Councilor for Ward 12 up in Ancaster and also, of course, the Chair of the Police Services Board. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us an overview. Lloyd, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Bill, to be able to explain this budget to your listeners. Well, let's let's get right into this, because I know that, uh, that this is always a contentious issue, uh, with some c- people on City Council anyway, uh, because you're trying to obviously balance the needs of the community, the the mandate of police services, but at the same time, uh, as you've said to us in the past, you've got to sharpen your pencil. We do, and uh, you know, there's always that balance between uh, making sure that our community is safe and making sure that we're responsible in how we spend. And I'll start with that by just re- reporting on the crime statistics that was presented in the budget yesterday. And uh, if you look over the excuse me last five years. Total crime rate is actually down 23% in the last five years. Total property crime is down 25%, and total violent crimes are down 28%. But we do have some big growth areas, and uh, we are bringing in nine new staff in this budget to uh, try to deal with these two big growth areas. One is cybercrime, and, uh, you know, we always hear about uh, uh, the problems with um, hacking that, that goes on. But uh, there's been a tidal wave of growth, and it touches all investigations, whether it's homicides, domestics, frauds, thefts, assaults, and there's a variety of sources for uh, uh, cybercrime, which include phones, computers, videos, uh, CCTV cameras, and they really do help a lot in the solving of crimes. And there's a variety of formats, and... um, and, you know, they help also when you can have video as as we saw in the Bosma trial uh, for presentation in court. But uh, hacking is a growing industry, and uh, but we've seen a 131 percent increase in the last five years between, uh, or last sorry, last nine years uh, for the amount of hours that are spent in cybercrime. And uh, but it is a, uh, an area that does help us solve crimes a lot quicker. And I'll cite the two experiences we had at the Meadowlands in Ancaster recently. And I think I talked about these on your show, where there was two quick incidences where um, uh, individuals would lay down the back seat of vehicles that are parked at the uh, commercial area of the Meadowlands. And once the driver returns, and they generally pick people that they can overpower, you know, whether it's women or elderly. Once the driver returned, they come up with a knife to the throat and tell them to take them to an ATM and get the PIN number and take out cash and then have them drive them back to the lower city where they assume they reside. And in both those cases, we had an arrest within one day. And the reason we had the arrest was because of the CCTV cameras in the storefronts. They were able to get photographs of these people, and uh, of course, they're, they're generally regulars around the police, and the uh, investigators knew who they were and were able to get an arrest. So while it's growing, and, and while we have to be able to respond to it, it is a great tool in our toolbox to help solve crimes and, and solve them very quickly. All right, but in that situation, uh, with the, those were privately owned CCTV cameras. I mean, they were done by the banks or the stores or whatever the case might be. So so when you say increased costs in the police service budget, where's that money going to be allocated? It's, well, it's in the staffing. In and staffing. So we, yeah. So we're I, I'm glad one. you brought that up. I had a, a conversation with uh, one of your officers uh, uh, just a week or so ago uh, that we bumped into each other at, at, at one of those stores. And uh, and that was one of the points that he made, which I thought was rather interesting. That doesn't get discussed a whole lot, I suppose, is uh, is the amount of hours that it takes to do some of these investigations. And he and he says it's very very difficult because people are demanding action, fix this now, solve this now, arrest that guy now, and they don't understand the work that has to go into that. Otherwise, the thing gets tossed out the minute you go in front of a judge. Exactly, and of course there has been. Uh, I think I'm very proud of the Hamilton Police Service and the way they've been able to solve some serious crimes. I mean, the, the recent murder in front of the mosque, I and mean, they had identification and an arrest within four days of the incident. 
and and that makes our streets safer when you can get these people who are doing these horrendous things to get them off the street. But when you see a 131% increase in the number of hours spent doing this, because they have to look at all these cameras and go through hours and hours of tape to find the evidence that they need, and they need staff to do that. So uh, there, we are hiring one more sworn officer in that area and one civilian in that area to respond to this demand for uh, uh it's called cybercrime. And, you know, when, uh, you know, somebody goes in and steals someone's money of a bank account, that's cybercrime because they're able to get passwords and get in and, and pull information off. So uh, it, the, the second big growth area in our community is sexual assaults. And sexual assaults has seen a 83% increase since 2008 in the number of crimes reported. It went from 298 to 546 in 2016. And so uh, there's more people reporting this. And, of course, this is very topical in our society right now with things that are coming out, particularly in the U.S., on, on sexual assault cases. And so we're hiring another full-time officer in that, another uh, special constable or a civilian in that. And what we've been able to do with the, with the nine new hires, uh, seven of those are going to be civilians. So there, uh, there are six that's going to the forensic unit uh, to do scene of crime investigations. So go in and photograph the sites. That doesn't have to be a sworn officer. It can be a civilian that's trained, takes courses, and graduates from programs at community colleges and universities on how to do this. But they're not sworn officers to gather that evidence. And because we put these, we're going to put these seven people, these seven civilians, into foreign sworn positions, we're able to take seven officers out of those jobs and put them back on the street. And, and there's been a lot of criticism lately that we don't have enough officers on the street. And the statistics, quite frankly, show that we're, you know, our, our population to cop ratio is, is pretty close to the average in the province. And I can go over those numbers if you like, but the, uh, uh, that may be a topic for another day. But well, we I know they were cited. I know they were cited, and I don't want to get into the whole thing about what happened either. last Saturday. Uh, not at this stage, but uh, the, there were some numbers that were cited, and there were some questions as to whether or not they were legitimate numbers. So maybe maybe for the sake of, the, of clearing that up, you might want to talk about the ratios. Well, I will. I just want to move on with the budget first, and we can come back at that at the end if we have time. Or sure, okay. Maybe you can get me back on another time where I can go through those numbers with you. So there's nine new staff that are in this budget, and seven of those are civilians to allow uh, seven officers now to pick up and move back into doing frontline work on the streets. And and um, and then we got two new sworn officers, one in cybercrime and one in sexual assaults for the total of nine. But it still is the lowest budget that... Uh, We've done in 19 years at 2.45%. And when uh, our city's finance department does presentations to city council on the city budget, which includes policing, um, they always show the net number, the impact to the levy. And our finance department has, has shown to council, and, and it's been shared publicly, that the assessment growth expected in 2018 is 1%. Uh, as your listeners should know, we've had over a billion dollars in um, building permits issued for the last number of years. And that results in assessment growth. So new taxes coming in from new development. And so if you deduct that 1% off the 2.45, which what will happen when it goes to the tax bill, the impact to your tax bill or to the levy will be 1.45%, which is significantly below inflation. And so by able to make our, our city safer with nine new employees, uh, we're actually having a, a, a net impact on your taxes of 1.45%, once again, less than inflation. So Okay, but let me ask you something about what city council's mandate now, because invariably they go into it to these uh, budget discussions and they tell all boards and agencies, this is where we want you to come. Uh, is that 1.4% within that range as far as, as yep, city council the, is concerned? Yes, the guideline was 1.5. All right. And we're sitting at 1.45 net impact to the levy. But I think that brings up another point. If you look at the, uh, and this may be some of the misconceptions that are out there. If you take a look at uh, since 2004 to 2017, is the levy impact of policing over time? And uh, there's no question it went through some growth, uh, uh, you know, in the mid you know, 2000s, early 2000s, into the early 2010s. But uh, if you go back um, in 2012, the percentage of the total levy impact for policing was 19.24%. Uh, 19, 19. And went to 19.31 in 19, 
down to uh, held the same at 19.32, but since 2015, it's gone down to 18.69, 18.52, and 18.6. So that's the percentage impact on the total city levy. And, and so uh, I think that's an important message that I'm going to be bringing to council when this comes to council for approval in uh, mid-January. And, and so the public needs to know that, that the impact on the levy is 1.45, and that, in fact, we've improved the percentage of the levy impact on police over the last three, three four years um, as, a, as a percentage of the overall levy. I know that sounds complicated. I'm trying to simplify it. But uh, it's an important thing to remember. In addition to that, you know, uh, uh, as you please do issue tickets, they call POAs or Provincial Offenses Act tickets, and that generates about $5.8 million annually that goes to the city, which the, does not cascade through to the police budget. So there's an additional $5.8 million in revenue the city enjoys through the uh, the POA thing. Uh, is that is that money dedicated, or is it just going to general levy? General levy, I believe. I can double-check that, but I believe it just goes into general levy as a Provincial Offenses Act revenue. Um, and, and, you know, we're also trying to deal with this significant spike in uh, drug overdoses and having to respond to that. There will be demands in the future on safe injection sites. I think we heard the deputy say that to council that uh, what they saw in Vancouver uh, around these safe injection sites, be, there need to be more policing presence. But despite all that this year, we're still coming in at a net impact tax levy of 1.45%. All right, but let's talk about staffing. And, and, and I understand that's kind of getting into some of the inside workings of, of police service, but you've heard those concerns, I've heard those concerns, and it's about a, a physical presence of police in some of these areas. And, and you're absolutely right. Deputy Chief Kinsella was, was very pointed, I think, in his comments about the safe injection sites. Uh, he supports the concept of it, but says it's going to bring some other problems with it. That would lend us to believe that this, you need more personnel down there. Uh, well, there's some concern about the action team. I, I, we've heard stories that the action team, is, some of them anyway, have been reallocated to some of the rail trails now because of the increase in sexual assaults. Do you have enough bodies to go around? Well, that's a better question for the chief, uh, but I can tell you that the average, is, we, we, you call pop the cop, uh, so it's a population to police officer ratios that we have. And currently, Hamilton has 151 per 100,000 of population, 151.2 sworn officers. The median across the province is 158.8. So we're about seven behind, but we are adding two more. You know, everybody wants to benchmark off Montreal, which has 226.1. Windsor has 197.5, but Halton has 122.6. Durham has 127.9. And Waterloo has 130.4. So we're significantly above those with Hamilton at 151. Niagara's at 153. London's at 155, and Calgary's at 158. So we're benchmarking off large police forces across the country. The only two that are in here that are outside of Ontario is Montreal, which has the highest at 226. So we're not that far. We're about seven officers off the average. And we're not a wealthy municipality. People like Halton and, and, and York are in big growth areas where they're having significantly more assessment growth than we have over the years. And, and so have had more money available to them. But still, we're holding right tight with them. So uh, that number should come out as, as interesting. And, yeah, but and there's another side of that, Lloyd. And, and listen, I, I got into this discussion way back when I was on city council with some of my colleagues back in those days, and because they would drag these comparison numbers out with other municipalities. And, and to a certain extent, it's, it's, it's relevant information, but it's also apples and oranges, because you don't know what kind of policing is needed in those communities. All you're looking at is a number of officers. Uh, Halton has different needs than Hamilton does. We've just outlined some of the concerns here. I don't know what the concerns are in Halton, but maybe they don't need as many officers. I, I, I don't know the answer whether it's yes or no, but it's it's always, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like statistics, you know, you can suit to any purpose you want right now to try to justify your, your point of view on something. Uh, so I, I don't take, put a whole lot of credibility into that. My concern is, are we getting the job done? That's really, and that's the overriding question that you've been asking at the police service. Board. I don't care how many officers there are. Are there enough? That's the question. Well, as I, as I said at the start of our conversation, uh, total crime was down 23% in the last five years in Hamilton. Now, uh, yes, there was a terrible murder, 
But I'm not sure if we had 100 more officers out there, there'd be an officer standing right next to that and be able to prevent it. Uh, that's a subjective opinion that we can have a good discussion on. And yes, you don't know what the other forces are, what kind of policing they do need. But it is a good guide, you know, the pop-to-cop ratio. And, and this shows we're only seven behind the average. And I don't think we need to be significantly above average because... Uh, of the results that we're able to get. Uh, the two big growth areas, again, are cybercrime and sexual assaults. And yes, they may take the action team, and that's the purpose of that group. They move them to hotspots. And a hotspot has been the uh, uh, downtown area, and that's where you see a lot of the yellow jackets and where you see evidence of action. But if there's a problem in Ancaster, they'll put some action groups up there uh, to deal with the problem. And if there's problems with sexual assaults on rail lines, they'll move them over there. That's the beauty of this program is where you can pick that, this group up and move them to what area of the city that needs the most help. At that point, we're going to break it off. Obviously, we'll wait until you guys start discussing this after the, uh, the new year, and we can get into some of the details on this. Uh, Lloyd, thanks so much for the overview on this. Really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. And I'd like to just give you one more statistic, if I can. The average cost of police service per capita, the median of our competitor groups, is 359 Hamilton's at 308 So we are a lower-cost operator uh, below the average in being able to deliver the outstanding police service that we are receiving from our officer, our, our employees, both civilian and sworn. Okay, more to come later on. Lloyd, thanks again. Appreciate okay, it. Thanks. That's a uh, chair of the Police Services Board, of course, uh, Ancaster Council, Lloyd Ferguson. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Okay, we're going we're to talk about the ward boundary issue and the Ontario Municipal Board decision that was rendered uh, in, uh, just earlier this week. Uh, which effectively selected uh, the second option from the consultant's report. And uh, as I mentioned to one of the counselors, to Brenda Johnson earlier this week, I said it's probably the ideal compromise because everybody's angry, which means that nobody really sees the upside on this. So we're going to get into it again. I, I find this an interesting phenomenon that's going on. I was just talking to, uh, to Liz and, and to Jacob about this earlier this week. It seems every time I bring somebody on to talk about this, if it's somebody who's in favor of the uh, the ward boundaries, uh, then everybody who's against it emails me and texts me and, and, and tweets me and says, ah, you're only getting one side. And when I get somebody who's on the other side, I get the same thing from the other people. So I guess, obviously, we're pleasing nobody and, and everybody at the same time. So I just wanted to warn our guest, John Best, of course, is the uh, president and publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, who's going to come on and talk about this. So, John, you're probably going to get a flurry of activity for saying almost anything on this. So just to have the body armor on you, all right? Well, you'll be getting the emails. Well, so well, well I'm going to forward them to you. Come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's John's fault, not mine. All right. Anyway, okay. how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. All right. Let's, let, before we get into to the who, what, where, and why of this, uh, give me your read on, on the OMB decision. What did you th- think of this? Well, I, I think it was uh, a good decision. I mean, it, 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 at least we got our $260,000 worth because... Uh, this report was done for the benefit of council. Uh, they they pretty much ignored it, um, and uh, you know what what you're getting here at least is instead of a bunch of people uh, getting out a map and taking out their crayons and marking it up, which is kind of what we had. Uh, you're, you this is rooted in in some kind of science. There's there, there's some methodology behind it. Um, you, you know, it was done by a professional demographer, so. You know, at least it's it it, it represents uh, more than just somebody throwing darts at a map. It it's got some a bit of science behind it. Um, as far as the you know, and I, I'm I'm sensitive to the issue of the rural uh, you know the rural area, the the ward 14 thing, uh, where we had a one ward out of the 15 was completely rural, and and now it's being uh, subsumed into Ancaster and Dundas. I, I think there is a point to be made, but if, you know, if people are worried about uh, whether there there should be a balance between the suburban and and the old city, that was changing anyway because because you had wards like uh, you know the Brenda Johnson ward that is uh, urbanizing very rapidly. Um, Ancaster so, is too. Ancaster, the you know, so I think at the end of the day we were going to end up with uh, you know an eight eight. Seven, eight, six, or uh, you know, nine, five, kind of thing happening just through the the way population shifts are happening. So I, I mean, it wasn't realistic to probably say that we would have an urban, uh, urban suburban split that was more or less a fifty-fifty. I mean, it never was totally fifty-fifty, but 
the idea that there should be some kind of a balance between the two, I think, was going out the window just on the basis of how our population is growing and shifting. But now I know that some people are going to think that we're just splitting hairs here, but when when that phrase gets used, urban versus rural, my first question is, are you talking uh, urban downtown Hamilton or urban Waterdown or urban Ancaster or urban Benbrook? Because those are urban centers. Yeah, they are, and, and that's the other point. Uh, you know, really, uh, with the old ward system, uh, you know, Dundas was, uh, the, the ward that included Dundas was essentially the urbanized part of Dundas with a little bit of rural. Same thing with Ancaster. So, you know, these these were never rural. They were, they, it's more more correct phrase would probably be urban suburban but nonetheless uh the you know the the hamilton uh, the old what we used to call hamilton wentworth is urbanizing at a very rapid rate uh because partly because of property value advantages that we have here and i don't think there's much that can be done to change that the other side to this, and, and I'm not insensitive to the concerns of, of, of people that, that work on farms. I mean, I, you know, when I was growing up and going through school, I worked on farms. I never lived on one, but we were right beside them up on Rymel Road back in those days. And I know a little bit about those things, and I've, I've stayed in touch with a lot of folks, and I, I get that. But, but the suggestion at this point, John, seems to be that, well, if you don't have somebody who is well-steeped in that, who is like a, a Robert Pursuta who is a farmer, then you're just not going to get representation. They don't, they don't get it. And, and I don't know if that's fair to the people that get elected to council. No, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, there, there's no attempt made to uh, um, have all other occupations uh, represented on council, uh, you know, teachers, uh, firemen, uh, business people, uh, you know, there's no, nobody thinks that, you know, all these individual uh, occupations should be, should have some kind of representation. I think the best you can do is, is make it geographic, and that's what the, the ward system does. Well, the OMB decision that was rendered, uh, I'm, I'm sure some people have read through this now, actually touched on that, and they said that you cannot have uh, occupations and, and, and industries represented on council. Uh, if you were to do that, then th- should there be a, stu- a, a Stelco representative? I mean, you know, should there be a manufacturing councillor? I mean, you can't do that. Uh, if you want to talk about the concerns about, about rural, etc., uh, elect good people. I mean, that that's the short answer to this. I mean, you know, when amalgamation happened in 2000, uh, the first councillor for the, the new council of Lancaster, of course, was, was Murray Ferguson, Lloyd's brother, uh, who did an outstanding job. I mean, he's a farmer, and so is Lloyd, for crying out loud. I mean, they were raised on a farm. They understand those issues, and they have to deal with, as you, we've just talked about, some rather complex urban issues that are starting to creep into those ridings. Uh, so, and, and, you know, Brenda Johnson, I think, has done a very good job representing some of the rural concerns in, in that huge riding that she represents. So I, I don't think you can simply say, well, if the person there doesn't uh, work on a farm or hasn't worked on a farm, they have no idea what farmers need or what farmers want. I think everybody is cognizant of the fact that we have a $1 billion agri-food industry here, and they want to do everything they can to protect it. And I think the track record over the last number of years indicates the council has done that. Yeah, I, I think so as well. I mean, it's impossible. The, the key there is you elect good people, hopefully, who, if they're not familiar, and how could any individual councillor be familiar with every industry that exists in, in Hamilton? Uh, it's like saying you have to be a Ph.D. in education to to have an opinion on on school matters, and of course that's not the case. I I think what you need is somebody that's open-minded, interested in serving, uh, somebody that's bright, that's uh, a quick study, and and the issues can be presented to them in a way that they they can understand them. Um, So it's not as good as, I'm not going to claim that, you know, the farmers are better represented by someone who's not a farmer, but uh, on the other hand, it, it shouldn't be an impediment to getting, uh, you know, agriculture issues uh, properly in front of council. Well, and if you don't know, and if you're not an expert on something, and if there is something that comes before council, ask. There are a lot of people, a lot of resources here uh, that, you know, the, the, that you can pick up the phone and say, okay, what do you think? And that's also, I think, one of the, the rationale for having public meetings. I mean, there are there are processes put in place for councillors to do uh, uh, these sorts of things and to become informed about that. I mean, the other side of that argument, it'd be kind of nice if they put their phones down and pay attention during some of those sessions, but, but that's that's probably another topic. Well, and who knows, if they had made a more sincere effort 
to uh, to actually address. I mean, the the reason we're getting this OMB hearing is because council effectively snub just thumbed their nose at uh, at their own consultants. Uh, tried to do a bit of minor tinkering. Uh, you know, if if they had said uh, we can, um, uh, you know, we we will address the issue in a meaningful way and try to get as much parity as we can. There might have been a way to save uh, one agricultural ward um, uh, out of out of fifteen, but you know it was such a half-hearted attempt to address the issue that a third party had to step in, I think, and address the issue. And you know the citizen uh, that uh, that pushed this issue deserves, I think, uh, the thanks of the community. Well, simply for doing the job that that city council probably could have and should have done. And and let's face it, if you want to put this in context, uh, we we need to restate the fact that the reason that consultant's report was done because council at that time got pushed into it. Uh, they've been kicking and screaming about this whole issue since the, since the year two thousand. Yeah, and I think the outcome. Uh, I mean, I you know I I was generally happy with the outcome, uh, with the caveat that uh, you know I am uh, concerned about that that agricultural issue. But having said that, you know this this is not a surprise. I you know I don't know I can't imagine anybody being surprised that once it went to the OMB that they wouldn't look at this very reasonable report that was done by Watson and say well yeah that makes sense and then look at what council put in front of them and say you know the, I, it's hardly different from the status quo. So it, it you know the OMB's job was made pretty easy by council's foolishness. And I know some people are getting hung up on on names and titles, but the the fact is, if you live in Stony Creek, you're still in Stony Creek. If you live in Dundas, you're still in Dundas. If you live in Flamborough, I don't care what ward it is, you're still in Flamborough. By the way, Flamborough's a made-up name anyway, and so yeah. is Glanbrook, for heaven's sakes. You talk to the people that have been out there for generations, and they lived in Binbrook and Mount Hope, not in Glanbrook. It's a name that was made up to try to accommodate the, the, the recreation of some of these wards. I mean... Uh, your community is your community, and nobody's going to take that away from you. No, and, you know, I think there's too much emphasis put on, uh, you know, it, it goes back to this idea of wards uh, with the longevity of most of our counselors. They they become almost fiefdoms, and, you know, that that's wrong anyway. I mean, a citizen should be able to uh, get a hold of their representative and, address, and have issues addressed without getting overly hung up on boundaries and that sort of thing you know we're we're you know it's craziness in many ways we drive around the city we go shopping we we go to entertainment restaurants you're never conscious of what ward you're in you're you know you just get on with things and you know it really is hamilton folks and on it goes with names. There's another element to this that we need to talk about, though, John. The city council, we're told, is going to have a closed-door session about this early next week uh, to decide how they want to respond to this OMB thing and whether or not there might actually be an appeal on this. Now, you, for years now, and the the Bay Observer, have, have been a, a proponent for more transparency on city council. Uh, which is not to say there shouldn't be closed-door meetings from time to time, and, and I'm sure that councillors are going to try to rationalize this by saying, well, we're going to get legal advice. Uh, we already know what the issues are. We already know what the decision that has to be made here. Uh, they've already spent a considerable amount of money. Should this be a session that uh, that's open to the public, that we can actually hear what's being said? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, there, there undoubtedly will be legal advice given, and, you know, on that very narrow issue, I, I think the... The issue of where they stand on the on the subject should be in open session, um, and then if there's uh, if they need to actually talk legal strategy with a city solicitor, they could perhaps go in camera for the ten or fifteen minutes it would take to get that issue addressed. But I think the bulk of the discussion, I think the public has a right to know where councillors stand on this issue, who's waffling, uh, you know, who's trying to throw out the the whole process and. I, I can already sense that there's people who are kind of getting in line behind uh, uh, Councillor Pasuda's situation, where his ward has effectively disappeared, and use that as cover to uh, sort of reinstate the status quo. But, uh, you know, the OMB having spoken, and they have the authority to do this, what it really comes down to is um, whether there was some part of the process that was improperly handled 
this is more like a judicial review than a than an appeal. Now, certainly the minister, I suppose, could override um, anything the OMB does, but the, I, you don't see that very often. So, I guess the question will be how much money is going to get spent um, challenging this ruling, if indeed. Uh, council goes that route. I, I, I think some councillors have decided that, uh, you know, they're going to put up with this and uh, they're going to accept the decision. They didn't want to initiate it, but decision haven't been made for them. Uh, they're going to uh, acquiesce. So there, there may not be enough votes to uh, launch a legal challenge anyway. Even if they're allowed to, and, and, and this is why I, I think a transparent session that's going to be open to the public is, is essential at this stage. Uh, from what I know of the Municipal Act, I don't consider myself to be an expert, but I've read the thing, and I, I had to live within it for a number of years, is if you want to appeal an OMB decision, you have to prove that they did something wrong. You can't just go before them and say, I don't like your decision. You've got to no. show that, no, you made a mistake by doing this. Not we disagree with you, but you made a mistake. Uh, and boy, I tell you that that's that's a huge, huge burden and a huge obstacle to try to overcome to tell that the OMB that they messed up on this. So that's going to be costly if, in fact, they want to do that. And how much more money are we going to spend on this and probably end up in the same spot again? Well, not only that, the uh, I read the OMB ruling. Um, it's uh, over a hundred pages, and they are extremely careful as they walk through the process. Yeah, not the first time they've done this. Yeah, they they talk about all the different considerations and how they weighed the various considerations. So it's going to be tough to uh, uh, take any great pot shots at their methodology. Uh, they were extremely cautious because I'm sure they were aware that uh, this thing had a the ability to be challenged. So I, I'm not sure where this goes from a legal standpoint. We'll have to uh, have. Uh, well, of course, we won't hear what the advice is that uh, the, that the counselors will be getting from from legal. But uh, I, I think it's going to be tough to turn this over. They luckily the the two hundred and sixty thousand they spent on the on the consultants report we we got that back uh, thanks to the OMB. But to go out and spend another couple of hundred grand on a on a you know feckless legal challenge. Um, heading into an election year, it might be smart just to uh, let it happen. Well, there's a time sensitivity. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, there is a municipal election, and that was one of the reasons why this was appealed in the fashion that it was, because they've got to get their ducks in a row for this vote coming up uh, in in the fall of, of 2018. And uh, I don't know that they want to delay this until uh, council gets around to launching an appeal and, and you know getting a date for it, etc. They, they may simply turn around and say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to live with it. Well, um, hopefully uh, staff uh, will get things ready uh, in the against the likelihood that this thing is going to happen the way the, the OMB has ordered it. You know, there, there's going to be, uh, we, we've talked about uh, what happened to uh, uh, Councillor Pasuda's war, but there's going to be some reasonably significant changes right across the mountain, and we've talked about the, the Brenda Johnson ward that uh, used to sort of cascade uh, down to the lake uh, in the east part of uh, Stony Creek, and, and now it's pretty much confined to uh, everything south of uh, the hydro line, uh, uh, which is south of Rymel Road, that, that's a big change. But, you know, I mean, again, we know that people get reelected on name recognition, and um, anybody that's got name recognition still has it. You know, it's not like the, the media is, are, are sort of divided up into wards. So if you're a well-known counselor and, and your ward has changed slightly, uh, you're still a well-known counselor. And probably still have the advantage. Well, and, and listen, that's going to happen. And, and, and if anybody on council was naive enough to think that they could go through a ward boundary review without having some of these uh, things happen, which could be a little uncomfortable, I would simply refer them back to when uh, the federal boundaries were redrawn a number of years ago, and all of a sudden you had Tony Valeri pitted against Sheila Copps for the riding nomination for that seat. Uh, we all know how that went. Uh, it was it was not a pretty sight. That no. happens, but hey, guys, that's politics. And if if you if you're just looking for a nice little cozy job that's not going to have too much in the way of of controversy, you're in the long wrong, wrong line of work. If you don't think you, it's not going to happen that way, no, it's not uh, for sure. And uh, you know, I I think we should let this thing unfold. I mean, this is part of what I would suggest is the sort of the maturation of of this uh, amalgamated city. We. We started off, uh, you know, 16 years ago with a, 
uh, a need to have a balance uh, between the suburban and the urban because there was so much uh, angst about the amalgamation. We've now had 16 years' experience. Um, some of the so-called suburban areas are urbanizing very quickly, population shifting. The community has grown and, and is going to grow uh, significantly. So this is, you know, probably step two where these differences are, uh, you know, frankly going to be less and less important as, as we move on and, and this uh, city continues to grow. The adolescence of the new city. Uh, maybe that's it. John, thanks yeah. as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, uh, the publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, lights at Queen's Park are out right now. Uh, they've uh, risen for what they call the Christmas break. Although this, uh, this is not just like a week off like many people are going to get over the holidays. Uh, these uh, Well, the plan right now is to come back to work after Family Day, which is, what, February 19th, I think it is? Middle of February, anyway. Uh, and that's the plan. Oh, even that stuff can be, be changed, I guess. I can remember in years gone by when uh, some of these breaks were extended and extended and extended. I guess it depends on really what the government wants to try to get done, because there is going to be an election next spring. Joining us to talk about uh, the, the uh, legislature that was... And uh, what's going to happen going forward is a Professor Christo Avelis, uh, Spe- Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council at the University of Toronto. Christo, thank you f- so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it got a little silly, I guess, at the last question period yesterday with people trying to make rhymes and trying to make their political points. Uh, and uh, I don't think there are any poet laureates in the legislature. That was pretty obvious from what was going on. But there was an undercurrent that was in, uh, in the frivolity and jocularity, I suppose, uh, that that this uh, there's a big election coming up, and there's a lot at stake here. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, they, you know, I think everyone wants to try to be a little festive this time of year. But I think uh, I think you're right that you know we're we're not too far off from an election. It's you know probably no later than six months away. But you know it could come earlier for all we know. Um, and I think that there's a sense that you know there's there's different visions happening right now there's a chance that a long sitting government could could go down there's you know the conservatives who you know are still polling quite well and and are running on a kind of very different platform than last time and you have the NDP as well who have a popular leader and and a you know a liberal government that has dissatisfied some of the kind of progressive middle of of Ontario that that may shift to them uh, whether for strategic or or kind of ideological reasons so i feel that there's there's certainly a a lot of tumultuousness right now in Ontario politics. Let me ask you about that date. I'm glad you brought that up because you know, there is a fixed election date law in Ontario, and, and we're, we're assuming that it's going to be in June of, of 2018. But if I read this correctly, Christo, they can they can pull the plug sooner if they want. Well, you know, the thing with these laws is that a, a law in Parliament is 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 it can can always just you know be be overturned, right? It's not a uh, a constitutional thing in that sense, you know. Um, any piece of legislation can be voted down by the parliament, and the government has a majority, so they could kind of choose to do what they will. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of these fixed election date things. They're not baked into our, you know, into our, our structures, much like or like they would be in the United States, where you know it's very clear. You know, in November you have elections every year, and they're almost always in November. Um, you know, two or four or six years, depending on the kind of office you hold. Um, and that's the way it is. In Canada, we don't really have that. But, you know, I think in this case, especially because the government, uh, at least as it is right now, probably isn't where they would like to be in the polls. They'll probably wait it out. Whereas, you know, if the government right now sensed an opportunity, sensed weakness in their opposition, they could have called an election in the fall. And they might have been able to use that to, to kind of squeak out a majority. And, and that's worked sometimes. It's, it's, it's blown up in the face of the government sometimes. Because uh, I can recall, I, I think it was after Mike Harris's first term, uh, in around 1999 or so. I mean, they, they broke for Christmas, uh, as, as these guys just did, uh, and never went back. I mean, they, they were supposed to go back in February or so, and I guess they kept delaying it and delaying it, and then he called a spring election. And so they were into election mode. They, they dissolved the legislature. So I, I guess it's a tool that's used on there. But, boy, uh, David Peterson, I guess, could tell you that you get better be mindful about what you try to do because it can backfire. Because he tried to do that, of course, back in 1991. Uh, the numbers weren't great, but he had a majority government. Thought I'll do this now before they get worse, and uh, he got tossed out of office. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you know, in Canada, there's modern examples. You know, Jean Chrétien was kind of effective at times at, 
you know, kind of the three-year term, even in a majority. And, uh, you know, there's elections in, in 95 and then also in, I believe, 98. And there's no need to because he had a majority uh, at the time. He could have, you know, wrote it out longer. But, but again, he must have, you know, saw the polls being really good. And, you know, you can never be certain they'll stay that good. And you, you pull the trigger. I mean, but, you know, the downside, as you know, David Peterson, also more modernly uh, in Britain with the uh, Conservative Party uh, calling an election, uh, thinking that they would, you know, win a really strong majority to go into Brexit negotiations. And they didn't know that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was extremely popular with the British young people. And, and all of a sudden, British politics is a lot more interesting, to say the least. Let's talk about polling and, and those numbers, because that's a, a, a phenomenon that a lot of folks are trying to get their head around right now, Christo. And, I'll, you know, use the Senate, uh, Alabama Senate seat uh, election from earlier this week. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, more was supposedly ahead, according to all the polls. And, of course, we saw what happened. Jones ended up winning that thing. Oh, even the U.S. presidential election. I don't know that there were too many polls that didn't show Hillary Clinton with a substantial lead. Yet, November the 8th of last year, of course, so, you know, we saw what happened there. I, and I can't get a read on what's going on here in Ontario right now. I, you can read five different polls, get five different results, and, and I don't know that people actually get much of an understanding or can rely on polling anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the challenges with polling, and, and you can never really fix this, is that even if the poll's done correctly, and some polls aren't, they can only go off the data they have. They can only go off the data they have um, and, and, and do the best to interpret that. And if things are very fast-moving, people are, you know, angry, if, if there's politics are, are, there's a different sense of the moment, something new is happening, it makes, uh, you know, measuring things like that very difficult. Um, demographics are very important. The reason for, in, in, in Roy Moore's case versus Doug Jones, is that, you know, the models they had about turnout, um, you know, measured African-American turnout at a certain level, and that turnout was quite a bit higher than they were expecting, especially for a non-general election. And so, in a very close election, that flipped the result because African Americans in that state vote overwhelmingly Democrat. So, if you underestimate the African American turnout, your polls are going to be off. You know what I mean? So, in Ontario, though, I mean you're right. I mean some of the polls have the Conservatives in a large lead, some of them not. I mean, I would say my inkling right now is that the Conservatives probably are in first place. But I don't know uh, to what extent. And then I'm really not sure who's in second. I, I really, I'm, I'm really not sure. I think you know maybe the Liberals have that kind of, you know, as a mainstream party with a mainstream media backing. You know, they have a certain corporate lineage that the NDP doesn't have that makes them safe to the Bay Street boys and whatnot. But um, they're not very popular, so I, I don't know. Right now, my inkling would be if there's an election today, I might, I might expect a conservative minority government, which would be very interesting to see who they could work with on what issues. What are the other elements, and I think we saw this with the last couple of provincial elections, is a lot of the polling is done on a province-wide basis. You know, we, we talked to 1,500 people, and they're, they're robocalls, and we, we know the process that goes on. But but voting and, and the way that elections are actually won or lost is, is oftentimes done on a regional basis. Uh, I mean, you know, Donald Trump lost the popular vote. I, I know we still can't accept that, but he lost the popular vote. But he won in key states where there were more seats. And, and the liberals, I think, channeled that last time in the election where they seemed to focus on the 905 and 416 area codes. And that's basically what won them the election last time. And they seem to be doing that again with all the money that they're dumping into Hamilton and, and, and Mississauga and Toronto for things like transit and LRT lines and, and things of that nature right now, assuming that, hey, that's where the votes are going to be. Uh, and, you know, the rest of the province is going to be whatever it is, but we want to try to hold on to what we've got right now. It's, a, it's an interesting strategy. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple things there. One, uh, you know, uh, when you can spend money, and whether it's cynical or not, let's let's... When you, let's operate under the assumption that it's, it's political, is that, you know, there's a density of population in southern Ontario, you know, people per square kilometer much higher. So if you're going to, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm using this term as a, uh, without connotation, but pork barrel, then you're going to do it in southern Ontario, where if you invest in transit in Kingston, where, you know, where I am a lot of the time, you're going to get much less bang for your buck than if you're going to do it in the kind of broad, metropolis that is, you know, basically Niagara to, to Toronto, where it's just people the whole way through. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And But you're quite right that we, we, our elections are quite different. You know, when you poll for a single race like, like the Doug Jones versus um, 
um, more. That one's a relatively easy thing to pull for because, you know, all Alabamans have the right to vote in that. And then uh, regardless of whether they live in a big city or a small town, it is one person, one vote. And then you add up all the votes at the end and who wins who, uh, the, the winner is the winner. Uh, with, you know, the U.S. presidential election, with the Electoral College, or with our first-past-the-post system, you're right that if you do a general poll, there's a potential that you miss some of the uh, regional oddities, uh, or maybe you overcorrect for those oddities, and then you end up with a situation where um, maybe not, uh, you know, party wins without the popular uh, vote, but maybe you underpoll a party by 2 or 3%, and that's the difference between them winning or losing or them forming a majority or a minority, and I think that's quite interesting. Of course, with polling, one thing that also is an issue is that it, it, it fails to capture some trends. For instance, we kind of was clear that Justin Trudeau was going to win government in 2015 towards the end. It was quite clear. But the polls were lagging, and they didn't predict the majority that happened because in the weeks before where the polls were kind of rolling in the days before, he was polling more in the mid-30s. But his you know, support was rising, and the polls couldn't capture that. Can a government twist things around and turn things around like this? And, and, and again, I look and see what the Wynn government's done during this last uh, term in the legislature, Christo, with that money that we've talked about, with their hydro plan. Uh, and I know that there's a great deal of consternation in some circles about how they're financing that, but the, the rates are lower. And to some people, that's all they care about. Well, you know, that number at the bottom of my bill is smaller than it was last winter, so I'm a happy camper. Now, not everybody's going to feel like that. I get that. But it seems as if uh, a team that uh, a liberal team that was dead last in the polls about 12 months ago seems to, I don't know if they've ridden from the ashes necessarily, but they seem to have regained some momentum. Even though they don't, the people don't seem to like Kathleen Wynne, they kind of like some of the policies that are coming out. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a, f- a few things. One is that, you know, Ontario has a certain strategic mindset, and the reality is a lot of people don't like the Conservatives. Um, whether fairly or not, they, uh, they just don't trust them. Uh, whether it's the Ontario Conservatives or whether it's the federal Conservatives. Um, so they vote Liberal to stop Conservatives. And that's, you know, an age-old thing. goes back to at least the 1930s or 40s here in Ontario, uh, really since the, the Bill uh, Joliffe was leader, Ted Joliffe was leader of the CCF, and once he slipped to third, the, the Liberals have been the, the anti-Conservative vote. Um, the reality is uh, that's the biggest issue, in my view. The Liberal policies, I mean, some of those policies are aimed at, you know, maybe people who would be NDP Liberal swing voters, $15 minimum wage, you know, the general labor reforms, limited as some of them were. Um, I think that's their, that's their aim, and that's the only thing that's going to work for her, I feel. I feel like she has to make sure that she remains the strategic option. I'm the one that's going to keep Patrick Brown out of office. And two, uh, I'm offering some cookies, some goodies to um, the center-left, if you will. And the other things are important, too, the hydro bill. Although, you know, I, 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 I think... And there's been a lot of this in the media um, that, you know, I think people understand that effectively the bills are going to be higher over a longer term. So I don't know how effective that's going to be, but um, I think that's her main goal is it's going to be a strategic one. She's not going to win on her own merits. She's going to win in a negative campaign based on a fear of Patrick Brown. That's the only way she's going to win. If you're the conservatives right now, I mean, if, if you know, they, we finish our conversation and, and Patrick Brown gets on the phone to Crystal right after we do this and says, look, at what should I do? I, I would imagine the advice is, that, listen, you're going to have to sell this policy. I mean, time is running short. Uh, it, there wasn't much of a bounce when they announced their policy a couple of weeks ago, which was very much of a, a Bill Davis, John Robart's uh, conservative party platform. But it, it doesn't seem to be resonating. Is it because people right now just aren't paying attention? It's Christmas time. There's other things that are on their minds. You know, I think that's part of it. I think, I think you know, uh, among the, the political class, a lot of us did notice that, that, that platform and said, you know, it's certainly, it's a conservative platform. There's a lot of stuff there about tax cuts and, you know, in, uh, you know in, in encouraging entrepreneurial uh, efforts. So, you know, there's kind of that traditional conservative viewpoint. But, but you're right in saying there's investments to, to health care, there's investments there. Um, and I think that, What's important there is maybe he doesn't see a bump, but unlike with Tim Hudak, it's going to be a bit harder to attack him. You know, some groups are trying, they're saying that, you know, he's got a secret anti-choice agenda, that there's, you know, a social conservatives in his caucus that will, that will grab control if he forms a government and that, that kind of, you know, uh, approach to, to, to attacking him. But 
uh, I would say that what this platform does is it gives credible deniability to some, you know, you know, unaffiliated voters that maybe this guy isn't that out of out of step with, you know, the kind of broad Ontario consensus, and maybe I can trust him. Maybe this is a protest vote for me because I'm not happy with the current government, but you know, I don't feel like I'm 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 doing anything too dangerous. Yeah, I, I think that could be that could be what the what his goal is. We might not see a bump right now. He's not going to see a crater. Like Tim Hudak did when he said he'd fire everybody. You know what I mean? And that's the reality. And, and that's the strange thing, because I've heard the same sort of feedback on this program. People saying, well, that's not really Patrick Brown. I don't know. I don't know. You know, people can change. We get that. Uh, everybody accused Stephen Harper of having an agenda when he got elected in 2005. Yet, for the most part, he kind of governed from the middle. I mean, it was it was middle right, but it was middle uh, and and a lot of those policies that everybody feared that he was going to introduce never actually happened. As a matter of fact, he, he seemed to, to quash any attempt from some of his backbenchers to even bring some of that stuff up. I don't know if that what Patrick Brown's going to be all about, but he's he's got about five months now to convince people, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that's the that's that's the point. I mean, the platform again, whether it got a lot of play, you're right. It is kind of end of the year. People are are, are tuned out there. You know, they're busy with other things. Um, but yeah, that platform. And I mean, you know, some people have looked at the details and said, well, maybe this is more conservative than we would think, you know, looking at the long-term effects. You know, I'm not, a, you know, an expert on the, all the fine, uh, fine details of their plan, but it's certainly marketed as this is going to be a center-right path, like you said, like a Bill Davis, kind of when the, the Conservative Party, effectively Ontario was a one-party state, but it, much like how the pre-Wildrose Conservatives in Alberta almost had within themselves various factions, this is almost in the kind of more Joe Clark Tory versus, you know, uh, Jason Kenney Tory uh, version. And I think that that's, that's the kind of conservative that can win in Ontario. And he does have his own caucus issues. I mean, the Liberals had the, the issue in Sudbury. Uh, you know, Patrick Brown has issues with some of his caucus, feeling that he's quashing the voices of, of more strident conservatives. I mean, he'll have to deal with that. But I think that he's doing what he needs to do, whether he'll be successful or not. At, at trying to um, get towards the election with, you know, yeah, some support in the mid to high 30s where he can form a government and maybe even a majority. It's going to be a very interesting 2018. Christo, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's uh, Professor Christo Avalos from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.